It's Father's Day weekend. And for many of us, it just creates all kinds of memories of remarkable joy and gratitude. My dad is the frailest 90-year-old on the planet. Um, every birthday since his 65th has been a minor miracle that we've celebrated. Um, he, he was the first and only person in a family of six to reach 65. Um, came from a really rough background growing up in, Quebec, in Montreal and the battles. He, he, just, he just grew up hard in the Navy, didn't know Jesus. And, um, and yet somehow my dad has persevered, lived longer than any member of his immediate family. And, and um, I talked to him last night. I'll call him again today. And my wife is not here. Um, my, my oldest son is a pastor and uh, he's finishing a, a master's um, in New Testament studies. And his last class, get this, this is, this is how school has changed. His last class is in Turkey and Greece. So they're visiting the seven churches, and they're going to take a, a boat ride over to Athens, and they're going to stop at Patmos and go to the place where they think John received the revelation. And my son is just like a, a Bible junkie guy. He just loves to preach and teach. And he's just in his glory. But uh, his wife is seven and a half months pregnant. And, so, and they've got three little ones already. So my wife decided it would be merciful uh, her gift of mercy kicked in to go and help my daughter-in-law out for these 10 days that my son is gone. So she's not able to be here, but uh, she really would love to have, have done that. Um, Father's Day creates all kinds of emotions for us. For many of us, it's just profound gratitude. It's just pure thankfulness. Um, no dad is perfect, but a lot of us feel like we, we kind of, you know, we, we, we just, we were just blessed with the fathers that we've been given. I feel that way. My dad's life was very complicated. Um, my dad was a, an alcoholic, and so a lot of my childhood was tainted by that struggle in his life. But by the grace of God, you know, 40 years ago, my dad said no more to that. And, 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 uh, and our relationship has just gotten better and better and better over the years. And I know it doesn't always work that way. And I'm just so deeply grateful that in my case with my dad, it, it has worked that way. For others of us today, Father's Day is difficult because we've lost our dads. And there's just a sense of of that memory that, that is hard for us today. And for some of us, we don't have dads, or at least dads that are actively involved in our lives. We don't have the kind of relationship where we can just talk and share the, the deepest of levels. And some of us even have dads that are home, but they're distant, and they don't seem very engaged with us. So it's a complicated day, and it's, it's just really important for us to acknowledge that. So when I think of what would I say on a Father's Day, I want to speak to dads, but I want to speak to all of us. And so make the application to your story, to your journey, to the chapter of life, the season of life that you are in. And uh, when I was driving down, it was a beautiful drive. I live up in Burlington. <clears throat> I was coming down, and I, I sometimes just play hymns. And I, I, um, with it being Father's Day, I, I, uh, I, I, I clicked on the hymn this morning, uh, This is My Father's World. And I was just, just reflecting. Let me just read some of the words. This is my Father's World. Um, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings and music of the spheres. It was just, you could just see the beauty of God in his creation um, today and that. And it says that, the, you know, the, the birds are singing, the morning light, the lily white declare the maker's praise. But then it got to that verse that some of us remember. Um, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong. God is the ruler yet. We sang about it this morning. Great is his faithfulness. Even when life 
is difficult and complicated. There's a lady in my church in Calgary that I pastored, and she went to heaven several years ago. And I got a call from her family saying, Shelly, it doesn't look like she's going to make it through the weekend. And so I, I went up to the hospital at Calgary Foothills Hospital, and I, and I got there, and Shelly was sitting in her bed, and she just lit up when I came. And, and her, her face, her smile could just light up her room. And, and I sat beside her. Her husband was in the corner, held her hand. We talked, talked about heaven, talked about hope, talked about Jesus, talked about going home, and she was very ready for that. This, this lady came in. She was a large Nigerian woman who came, and she was bringing food. Not that Shelly was going to eat it, but she was there, and, and she just filled the room with joy. Her presence was so remarkable. And she came in, and she said, uh, she said ah, who's visiting you today, Shelly? And she said, this is my pastor who's come to pray with me. And this lady said something I'll never forget. She said, ah, we need a little more Jesus in this place. And I thought, do I bring Jesus into this place? Do I bring his grace and his truth and his hope and his joy and his peace? Do we bring Jesus into our homes? You know, are we a fountain when we enter the house and we bring life? Or are we a drain? We just suck life out of the room when we enter into it. Is our family thrilled when we show up? Or is it, oh, he's back? Or, oh, no, he's home. The doctor came in. It was Saturday, and it wasn't her regular doctor. And this it was a new doctor. He didn't know her file. And her file was at the end of the bed, and it was quite thick because she had so much wrong with her physical body. And he grabs the file, says hello, and he starts paging through it quickly just to try to get a bit of an understanding of her health needs. And he's looking at her. She's smiling back at him. He's looking at this. He's looking at her. And then he finally said, I'll never forget this. He said, this file does not match your face, your countenance. How can this be? And Shelley looked and smiled and she said, oh, she said, I've met a man. And he looks at her husband and she goes, not him. (laughs) She goes, he's great. But I met a man and his name is Jesus and he's changed my life. The doctor changed the conversation quite quickly. But has Jesus changed our lives? We live in an incredibly complex world. We know it as dads. How do we be the kind of father that's like the father? How do we respect, reflect the father's love to our children, to our families, to our places? Where how, how do we take Jesus into high school with us today? What an incredibly challenging reality. How do we be the voice and the heart and the hands of Jesus to our neighbors, to the people that we live with and serve? How do we live in this world that's just so complex that sometimes the wrong seems oft so strong. And to believe that God is still the ruler yet sometimes feels so overwhelming for us. How many young adults, even here today, you know, are thinking, you know, am I ever going to get a job after university? Am I ever going to be able to pay off my student debt? Am I ever going to be able to leave my parents' basement and buy a house in this culture? And what parents don't think, will our child ever get a job? Will they ever pay off their debt? Will they ever leave our basement? <laughs> My son is 31 years old, just completed an MBA last month. He's brilliant. He got a job with Deloitte Mergers and Acquisitions. He's, he's just got this incredibly uh, amazing path ahead of him, and he just moved home into our basement. 
It is a challenging season of life for so many. How do we make sense of that? You watch the news and we see forest fires and we hear about climate change, all the LGBTQ plus stuff that just makes our hearts ache and our heads hurt as we try to navigate that complex world. All the, the tragedy in Manitoba this week. If the news doesn't make us pray, I don't know what will make us pray. How do we navigate inflation and interest rates and Family life is complicated. Whether the struggle is with marriage or with not being married, whether it's with your children or the inability to have children, that's painful for people on a day like today. Whether it's distant parents or aging parents or hovering parents, controlling parents, how do we make sense of it all? I'm not really here to depress us all. Sorry if I just did. But in the words of the famous philosopher theologian Francis Schaeffer, wrote a book back in the 70s, the title just keeps capturing my heart when I look around me. And the title of his book was, How Then Shall We Live? In light of the challenge and the the reality that we face every day, how do we live? We live in a culture where myriads of people, including us often, we're overwhelmed with the challenge of life. We feel under-resourced. We deal with grief and fear and emptiness and guilt and temptation and loss and shame and despair. We can't ignore the simple reality or we must not ignore the reality that life is complicated and at times the wrong seems off so strong. How do we navigate it? What do we do? How do we make sense of that? To be more positive, let me say it this way, that the plan of God for our lives is not that we'll simply endure and get by and somehow survive, but the plan of God for our lives is that we'd be amazed by the gift of life. We'd be, we would wake up with a profound sense of gratitude that God has given us another day to know him and to serve him and to love him and the people he brings across our paths. How then shall we live? We choose to live like Jesus. How do we live like Jesus? We come to this book. I love the words of N.T. Wright. He says it's a big book. It's full of big stories with big characters. They've got big ideas and they make big mistakes. It's about God and greed and grace. It's about life, lust, laughter, and loneliness. It's about birth, beginnings, and betrayal, about siblings, squabbles, and sex, about power and prayer and prison and passion. And that's only Genesis. (laughs) It's a book that speaks to the real-life challenges that you and I face, and it's a book that tells us how to live. So I want to take a day in the life of Jesus. And dads, I hope that you can make connections, but for all of us, that we can make a connection. And I hope you have your Bibles or at least a phone or a tablet that you can turn to Mark chapter one. And I wanna read a little bit about this first day in the public life of ministry. I love Mark because I think I'm ADD and I'm convinced that Mark was ADD. The word immediately shows up 52 times in this gospel. There was an urgency about it. He got the whole thing in 16 chapters. You know, it took Matthew 28 and, and you know, Luke 24 and John 21 or 2 or whatever it is. And like, but Matthew's just there's an urgency about him. You know, you've got, you've got, you got Matt, or Mark. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy because it's got this Jewish perspective and he wanted everything to be anchored so they could know how Jesus fits in the grand redemptive plan of God. And, 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 and Luke, he's a doctor, so he spends two chapters on the birth of Jesus. You know, like Mark goes, Jesus was born. Luke gives two chapters, and like one of them's got like 70-some verses in it. Like he's because he's a doctor, he cares about those kinds of things. John's this mystic, this theologian. You know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he goes on in this remarkable theological statement about who Jesus was and, and how Jesus lived. And it's a much more intimate look at Jesus, which is probably why he describes himself as the guy that Jesus loved. But Mark just dives right in. And, and, and so let's take a look. And, and uh, I didn't bring my glasses. Somehow my Bible 
My font keeps getting smaller. I don't know how that works. This is kind of a cool Bible my son gave me, but anyways, let me see what I can do here if I can read this, but it's Jesus beginning his public ministry. He's healing people. He's setting people free in the name of Christ, his name. He's, he's, he's transforming lives and stories and journeys. It's a really remarkable thing. And, and then they, they, it's supper time. So they go to Peter's house, uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house, actually, but she's really sick and that. So I love this. I'll come back to it in a minute. But it says Jesus went to her. Um, well, first of all, it says just before, well, it says they told, and Simon's, let me read it. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. Let that sit in your mind just for a moment. We'll come back to it. So Jesus goes to her, takes her hand, helps her up. Fever leaves her. She begins to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. It says the whole town gathered at the door. What an incredible image this creates for us. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He healed many. That's interesting, too. It says he also drove out many demons. Um, and he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. But then we have this picture, verse 35. And, and what I want us to understand today, if we're going to live like, like Jesus lived, if we're going to make sense of this journey, if we're going to answer the question, how then shall we live? We need to do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do, verse 35? Very early in the morning after this intense day of ministry, Jesus withdrew to the quiet place where he had a conversation with the Father. Again, try to imagine the demands, the, the, uh, the things that are going on here. The whole town is there. And in the midst of all these demands and all these expectations, all these obligations, all the need that was represented around him, we find Jesus early in the morning getting up, leaving the house, finding the quiet place to be alone with the Father. And church, I'm convinced that the foundational ingredient for finding peace and stability in our personal lives in our public expressions of life, wherever we go to school or work or live or play, the key to making sense of the journey is learning to be still and alone with our Father. It is in that quiet place where character is forged and where commission in life is discovered. Jesus demonstrated for us that strength and direction in life is the fruit of time alone with the Father. It's a contemplative dimension of life that so many of us in this activity-addicted world in which we live struggle to find. It's early in the morning. He withdraws to the quiet place. Uh, so often, it's so difficult for us to find a prayer experience with God that's transformative. I, I can easily approach a quiet time with a degree of skepticism. Prayer can seem so difficult I love Eugene Peterson's words when he says, prayer is a wonderful tool that can bring a sharp personal awareness of truth to those of us who so easily allow our spiritual perceptions to be dulled by dull, habitual, religious living. Is that our experience? Of, let me get, is it dull, habitual, religious living? Or is this deep sense of intimacy with God? I have a, uh, went to hear a, a guy, and he, he was quite an, an older man. Uh, I was quite young. So now when I think about it, he was my age. <laughs> but at the time, he seemed old. Now, of course, it's incredibly young. Um, but I remember him saying, Jude, I, I'll never forget it. He said, I used to feel guilty when I missed my quiet time. But now having walked with Jesus all these years, I don't feel guilty anymore. I feel cheated. 
Oh, that we could have that kind of relationship with God where the quiet time is not just a little box to be checked, but it's, it's, it's the highlight of the day. It's the time when we, we bask in the Father's love for us, the wonder of being a child of God, the price that Jesus paid to bring us back into this relationship. That we would just so long to open the book and allow the book to speak into our story and to talk about our stories with the Father who longs to step into our lives and make a difference. It's not a shock to say that the world in which we live is not familiar or a friend of quietness and stillness. We face daily weapons of mass distraction. We are such a distractible people and we live in such a distracting world. Rarely are we alone with our thoughts or with God. We're busy. You know, our food is fast and our debt is deep and our relationships can be shallow. We often have so little margin because it's just go, 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 go. Many claim a relationship with God, but the evidence of that spiritual center seems thin. We're in a hurry all the time. We're just so busy. Here's what you can't do in a hurry. You can't build a great marriage in a hurry. You can't build fantastic kids in a hurry. You can't build a great church in a hurry. And you can't grow a deep, authentic walk with God in a hurry. It's just hard to do. We gotta change the way we live. We gotta adjust the pace. We need to find times and places for solitude and quietness. Jude playfully suggested to the children that maybe this afternoon is the time to play in the yard or go for a walk with a parent. So many of us are too busy or too distracted to take time for those simple life-giving moments that create incredible opportunities for conversation. If we fail to cultivate a spiritual center in our lives, Henry Nouwen wrote, without solitude of heart, the intimacy of friendship, marriage, and community life cannot be creative. Without solitude of heart, our relationships with others become needy and greedy, sticky and clingy, dependent and sentimental, exploitive and parasitic. Because without solitude of heart, we cannot experience the others as different from ourselves, but only as people who can be used for the fulfillment of our own often hidden agendas. It's in the quiet place that we find wholeness and value. Behold what manner of love has been given to us that we should be called the children of God. And then we approach life, not for what I can get, but for what I can give. Are we familiar at the quiet place? Most important thing about us, it's not what we own, it's not where we work, it's not how well we do in school. It's not any external measurement. The most important thing about us is what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about this book. Jesus was familiar with the quiet place, are we? Coming out of that, if we keep going through the text, we discover that Jesus didn't just love the quiet place. Jesus shunned the hidden agenda of others and only wanted what the Father wanted. You know, we call it the Lord's Prayer. I'm on a campaign. Maybe, Jude, you could join me here. I'm on a campaign to rename the Lord's Prayer because I think the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 that we often pray and should often pray, I think it's the disciples' prayer. I don't think Jesus prayed that prayer because Jesus didn't say, forgive me my sins because he never sinned. It's the prayer that he taught us to pray. You know what the Lord's Prayer is? Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. 
not my will, but thine be done. That's the prayer that Jesus prayed and taught us to pray. Jesus shunned the hidden agenda. Here he is. So he's out in the wilderness above Capernaum. It's, it's beautiful, rugged territory. And he's up there spending time with the Father. It's sort of cool. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, comes and does one day of ministry, and goes right back to the wilderness. <laughs> it's really fat. Think about that one for a while. That's really amazing. But he's in this solitary place after a day of intense ministry, and, and everybody's noticed. The whole town's gathered at the door. And then in verse 36, he's praying alone, and it says, Simon and his companions came looking for him. Roughly translated, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I think it means they hunted him down. <laughs> and then it says, when they found him, they exclaimed, everybody is looking for you. Which roughly translated means, what in the world are you doing out here wasting time in the desert when there's piles of people waiting to see you? This is an incredible opportunity to draw attention to us. I mean, draw attention to the movement that we're initiating here, and you're up here kind of just sitting by yourself in the bushes. Like, what's up, Jesus? I love Jesus' answer. He says, I'm not going back to Capernaum. There are other places to go today. And his answer reveals something that you and I desperately need in life. If we're going to be the kind of dads, moms, kids, people, neighbors, friends, church members that he wants us to be, that Jesus was incredibly deeply aware of just what it was that he was supposed to do with his life. The will of God is not some elusive, hard-to-discover, impossible-to-discern reality. It is something he wants to make known to us day in and day out as we learn to walk in the Spirit. Jesus was focused. He wanted to follow no agenda but the Father's agenda. And church, you and I need to know what we need to do with our lives. We'll never live up to all of the expectations that people have upon us. I used to have a sign on my wall in my office it said, I can only please one person per day. Today is not your day. <laughs> and then it said, tomorrow doesn't look good either. <laughs> I took it down after a week, but it made me feel good for a week. We'll never meet all of the expectations and agendas that others will have for us. But we need to embrace God's agenda and his purpose. Jesus wasn't about drawing attention to himself. He was passionate about doing the will of the Father. His priorities were set by the plans of God and not the whims of people or the demands of culture. He lived this incredibly focused life, this incredibly crystal clear commission as to what he was to do. Here's your story. Your life is purpose. To stray from that purpose is to invite frustration into your soul. We can't be everything to everybody, but we need to be something to somebody. We need to shun the hidden agenda. We need to run from the hidden agenda. And we need to embrace God's agenda because his will is good, pleasing, and perfect, Romans 12 tells us. And his plan is to give us a hope and a future, wrote Jeremiah. Not to harm us or to hurt us. We need to embrace God's plan and God's purpose. And then he models what it is. So he's alone with the Father, pursuing the Father's plan, and then we have this encounter at the end of this day that just is staggering if you really stop and think through the implications. So let me read it for us, beginning, I think, in verse 40, but the numbers are really small and hard to see. Um, it says, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, and he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. My old NIV said Jesus was filled with compassion and reached out and touched the man. I really like that. But my new NIV reads, Jesus became indignant and reached out and touched him. 
Not sure why. Was he mad at the impact of sin upon humanity that was destroying his children? Maybe. Was he mad at if you think I can help here? You know, could you? Like a lack of faith? Was he frustrated? I don't know really what it means. But what I want to focus on is the fact that Jesus reached out and touched the man. And he was made well. In this encounter, we see compassion, kindness, caring for others taken to a brand new level in the healing of the leprous man. You know the story. It's this incredible encounter between humanity and divinity. There's, there's one who's called untouchable. He was no doubt well acquainted with his condition, eager to be cleansed, humble enough to ask Jesus to touch him. But then there's one whose life was marked by kindness and compassion, one so filled with love that laying a hand upon the untouchable, the leprous seemed suddenly the right thing to do. The needs of this man so gripped Jesus' heart that he violated taste and culture, and he reached out and he touched the man. And when we stop and think of the cultural taboo of contact, religious taboo of contact with the leprous, the horror of it all, the impact of this account is almost staggering. In the Bible, the leper is the ultimate symbol of of the outcast, infected by a disease they did not seek, rejected by those they knew, avoided by people they didn't know, condemned to a life of loneliness and isolation, facing a future without any hope of anything ever getting any better. Imagine the physical horror of leprosy. Imagine the social isolation of leprosy. Imagine the emotional scars of leprosy. Imagine the loneliness of leprosy. And then if you could, imagine feeling the touch of Jesus. It's amazing. For the first time in who knows how long, Rather than feeling rejection and isolation, the man felt the touch of another person, Jesus. I love Jesus' awareness of and response to the human condition that we see in Christ. And I would suggest that this kind of compassion must be the defining characteristic of our lives if we're ever going to take seriously God's purpose for us to live like Jesus. There was a little girl that had a prayer, Lord, make the bad people good and make the good people nice. Because good people aren't always nice. Does the kindness of Jesus flow through us into the lives of those we interact with? And on a day like Father's Day, the question needs to be asked for dads like myself. Does the kindness of Jesus flow through us into the lives of our spouses if we're married? our children or our grandchildren? Is there a sense of joy and peace and love that enters the room when we enter the room? Because if we have Jesus in our life, when we enter the room, he enters the room. And the room needs a little more Jesus. Even our homes need that. Is there evidence of compassion? in our lives today? Who needs us to be Jesus to them? We're never more like Jesus than when we are loving and serving others. Is that our passion? I love back in verse 30, I mentioned it briefly. I've read this passage hundreds of times. It's the only book I've read dozens of times in my life. And it says, 
Simon's mother-in-law, verse 30, was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. And I read that a few months ago, and I thought, who am I talking to Jesus about? Ian Bounds wrote that we can't have conversations with people about Jesus until we have conversations with Jesus about people. So Les London, who are you praying for? Who are you investing in? Who are you talking to the Father about? Who, who do you want to be in heaven with you one day? If, if we lose the passion, not just to be a church for the insiders, but a church that loves the outsiders, we will no longer be a good church for those on the inside. Our faith is intended to be given away. Jesus modeled profound compassion towards vulnerable people. Do we? Who are we having conversations with Jesus about? How do we make sense of life? Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There are all kinds of voices in this world. Voices from within telling us that we're not good enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not smart enough, we're not rich enough, we're not spiritual enough, we're not successful enough. But when we learn to hear the still small voice of God in a quiet place, when we learn to embrace the agenda and the purpose and the plan that God has for our lives, when we learn to look to give and not get, to love and not just be loved, when we learn to live the life that Jesus lived, we hear God's voice telling us that he loves us unconditionally. We hear God's voice telling us that he has incredible purpose for our lives. And we hear God's voice that gives us an opportunity to go make a difference in the world. It's Father's Day, so I need to tell you a story about my dad. My dad is, is uh, incredibly kind. He's the epitome of a gentleman. He's very quiet. He's quite introverted. My dad was practicing social distancing way before COVID ever happened. He lives in a care home. He's kind to everybody, but doesn't talk to a ton of people. My dad, through his struggle with alcoholism, came to understand Jesus. Not sure he ever fully learned to walk in all the fullness of Jesus. We're all trying to figure that out. But I believe my dad knows the Lord. And my parents used to come to church when I was pastoring in Calgary, and they were able to. My mother would come so she could stand in the middle of the foyer and tell everybody that she was my mother. Um, my mom's quite extroverted and quite outgoing and quite lovely. Uh, she was. My dad would just come and just sit quietly, waiting for mom to greet the entire church, and then they would head home. One day, there was a young couple that came to our church. Their names were Dave and Darcy. And I met them through a child dedication class. They, they had a little baby, and they wanted to have him dedicated. It was their second child. And so I did that for them. And, you know, you meet people sometimes. You just really connect and like. And I felt that way with Dave and Darcy, especially Dave. And about three months later, four months later, I got a call from Darcy, and her voice was shaking. And she said, Ian, Dave's in the hospital. He's really, really sick. And it might be cancer. And I said, I'll go. And I, and I went and sat with him. He was in a ton of pain. And uh, it was determined over the next few days that Dave had stage four bowel cancer and had months to live. And Dave and I used to meet every week. And we pray and we talk about Jesus. We talk about the scriptures. And um, he was just, he became my friend. And Dave's sickness, uh, he was 6'4", weighed about 240. 
The cancer took 100 pounds off of his body. He was gaunt. He was frail. He had to have a G-tube to get some form of nutrition into his belly to keep him alive for whatever length of time he had left. And um, Dave couldn't really come to church anymore. And then one day, I see Dave and Darcy walking in, and he was wearing, he looked so frail. He could barely watch. He was kind of holding him up. And I greeted him, and, and he said, I just needed to worship Jesus with people today. And so Darcy took the kids to wherever the kids went, and I took Dave and sat him where he used to sit. And um, after church, they came, and they approached me. And uh, Dave was there, and he's really tired, just worn right out, but loved being in church, loved worshiping Jesus with the body. Darcy went to get the kids, and I, Dave needed to sit, and there was, my dad was sitting where he sits waiting for mom. And I said, Dave, come sit over here. There was an empty seat beside my dad. And they sat down. I said, Dad, this is my friend Dave. I said, Dave, this is my dad, Sandy. And my dad shook his hand, smiled warmly. And I walked, greeting people, doing the pastor thing that you do after church. And I kept glancing over. And Dave and my dad, they're both quite introverted, are having the most animated conversation back and forth. And I'm just watching this happen. And it was, just, it was really cool. And then Darcy comes to me, and she goes, who's he talking to? He never talks to people. And I said, he's talking to my dad. My dad never talks to people either. You know, like this is an amazing moment. And, and that, and anyways, it was time to go. And I, we walked over. And Darcy helped Dave up. I helped my dad up, you know, because they needed help. And, and my dad again reached out and took Dave's hand and held it. And he said, David, it is very obvious to me that you are in a very, very significant battle physically. And Dave shook his head, nodded. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, though you're in a battle physically, it, your soul exudes wellness. And it has been my privilege to meet you today. So dads, let me ask you first. Is there a wellness of soul that flows out of your life that impacts those you live with, work with, play with, worship with? For all of us, the greatest gift we can give to each other is the ability to say, and not just sing, but say, it is well with my soul. On this Father's Day, the Father longs to give us the gift of wellness so that we can then extend it to those he brings across our paths. We're going to end with a beautiful song. A song that reminds us all of how much we need Jesus. I have a favorite Father's Day memory, and it's not with my dad. It's with my friend named Hank. Hank served as an elder in my church, incredibly godly man. And Hank's wife, Arlene, got sick with cancer. And Arlene passed away at 5 o'clock in the morning on Father's Day a bunch of years ago. In our church, we used to just open the altar during the worship time. And, uh, and people would come and pray for their kids, pray for their dad, come as families. It was just a really low-key, but meaningful experience. We did it a long time. And I will never forget, I was sitting over here, and Hank got up. He came to church. His wife died four hours earlier. He 
comes to church, he walks down the aisle, and he kneels right here. I just wept as I saw him pour out his heart to God. But what happened next was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. His three children, all young adults, all married, got up from their various spaces, and they came and they surrounded their father, and they put their arms around him, and the family held each other, cried, and wept, and prayed. And though they didn't use these words, they said, and though the world, although the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And though they didn't say the words, they prayed, I need thee, Lord, every hour, I need thee. And church today, whatever you're going through, whatever your story, maybe your story is filled with joy and gratitude and peace and hope, praise Jesus and just give thanks. Maybe your world's a little bit complicated. Maybe some of you won't have conversations with your dad today or your children today, or they won't be deep, meaningful conversations. Whatever the wrong is in your life, seek the quiet place. Pursue the will of the Father. Extend as much love as you can at any moment and let God be God and see what he does in correcting the wrongs of the world. So as we sing, I will invite you to pray and to commit and to reflect and to say thank you and to say, Lord, I need you. This day, all day, and every day. Let me pray as our worship team will come. Father, I ask that you'd meet us today. I ask you'd touch us today. I ask you'd encourage us today. I ask you'd give us a passion to know you so we can embrace your plan and your purpose for our lives. And Lord, where we have strayed, where we've wandered, where we've become indifferent, where we've lost the plot, Spirit of God, would you come and gently draw us back? And thank you that though we've wandered 50 steps away, it's always one step back to Jesus. So help us to take that step of faith today if we've wandered. And if our lives are in a good space and place, we just give you thanks. Lord, it's possible there are some here who have no relationship with you today. Could you gently and graciously lead them to that place of trust? that this song could become their song, that the words could become the sentiment of their hearts, and that they could simply say, Jesus, I'm here. I need you. And come make me the person you long for me to be. For dads whose hearts are weary, give courage and strength. For each of us, have your hand upon us. We need you. And we come to you now. In Jesus' name I pray.